Well, good evening, and thank you for coming to be with us tonight. Uh, please, if you have a Bible, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, we've been spending a number of weeks just settling into Ephesians chapter 4, just really because some of the principles that are presented to us there by the Apostle Paul are the very, the very fabric of God's design for the church, and we as elders really felt we would benefit from taking some time just to think through what this passage has to teach us about how a church, and ideally how a good church, would function. <clears throat> Excuse me. So let me, uh, just as I've tried to do every week, um, let's read this passage. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 16. Again, just hopefully um, more and more of the, the beauty of this passage just seeps into our souls the more we're exposed to it. So let's read together. Ephesians 4, verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Amen. This is the word of God. There are some alarming trends in our society, and one of them is how long our offspring remain dependent. The average age at which particularly males leave the family home is creeping up and up and up. And most of them are now not getting married until they're in their 30s, guilty. But as a father of two small children, it's concerning if this trend goes on just how long we're going to have them. But there's other things, isn't there? I mean, there's part of us that knows that there's something just not quite right about that. We expect that children will come to maturity. You know, when you get the little red book home with, with the baby, and every time the health visitor comes, the baby is weighed and various dimensions checked, and there's this uh, graph that's filled out, and it tells you uh, where they are on the scale of average. 
Just imagine if every time that book was filled out, the reading never changed. Just remained in immaturity, never reaching physical maturity. It would be a tragic thing. It would be a frightening thing. Well, in a sense, that's the sort of thing we come to tonight. When we think about how a good church functions, what we've seen already in this series is that uh, the Lord has called and equipped individuals and, and given them as gifts to the church, those who would minister the word. We've seen that their ministry is to the members of the church in order to equip them for service. And this is possible because every member of the church is a member of the body of Christ and has been uniquely gifted for service. And, and the, that only works as each member depends upon the other. And tonight we come to this subject, that, that a, a church functions, it functions well when it is spiritually mature, when it is firmly grounded, as we'll see. And so I want to point out just, probably just a couple of big points here. Um, the first thing I want to show you here is though that Paul's vision of spiritual maturity is one that is that's reached together. I've been surprised, actually, at the number of uh, commentators I've read on this subject, and particularly looking into verse 13 and 14 of this chapter, who almost entirely zero in on this subject as being about personal spiritual maturity. And, of course, that plays a fundamental part of it. We'll come to that. But really, the language that Paul uses here, his concern is about the collective group of believers, the church, the church coming to spiritual maturity. And, of course, it goes without saying that uh, all the emphases that we've seen already in this series about how uh, believers have unity in Christ, and that is demonstrated by how they uh, depend on each other and coordinate with each other in the diversity that Christ has given. But that unity that's given, it's not worth very much unless it's rooted in something, unless that unity is around something meaningful. And so for, for Paul to speak about unity, he, he must be speaking to more than individuals. You see, you can't have such a thing as unity if you're only speaking to one person. It, it requires others for unity to really exist. And so the analogy that he goes on to use in verse 13, which we're going to really focus on tonight, is he says... Um, this work that the teachers do to equip the saints for the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until, verse 13, we all attain to the unity, of the, um, the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now that language there of, of to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, he's, he's, he's speaking about the church. This goal of, of coming to adulthood is not just directed towards an individual believer. This is the goal of the church. It's the body of the church that is to grow, to flourish. And, you know, Paul's used similar language to this already in this letter to the Ephesians. This has always been Christ's design for the church. Back in chapter 2, Paul's big point about the nature of the church is that it brings together Jews and Gentiles that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. 
The church is this new man. And here in chapter 4, Paul tells us that more than just having this status of being the body of Christ, of being this new man, well, the church is to visibly be this. It is to be spiritually mature. So we're going to come back to this, but try and hold in your mind as we go through this that Paul's concern is that the church together would mature, not just speaking to isolated individuals. So having pointed that out, let's look at Paul's language here. My first point really is and spiritual maturity is knowing the truth. Spiritual maturity is knowing the truth. And this is what Paul conveys in verse 13 when he writes, until we all attain to the unity of the faith. Instinctively, when we hear that word faith, I think we think of our, our personal faith. I think of the faith that I put in Christ for salvation. But there's more than one way that the word faith is used, not just in the Bible, but in, in general as well. Uh, sometimes in the Bible it ref- it's referred to as the faith, as the translators of the ESV have done here. The faith, which means it's referring to the content of Christian truth. So, for example, if you come to the letter, the small letter of Jude at the back of your Bible, he appeals to his readers, and I quote, to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And there he's not talking about that personal trust and faith. He's talking about the body of what we believe as believers. And that seems entirely keeping with these themes that we've seen in Ephesians 4. As I said, the starting point for this section in verse 11 is that there are God-given leaders in the church who will minister the word. They are to give instruction to the members of the church. You could also look at the link in verse 14 between, uh, verse 13, I beg your pardon, between the unity of the faith and the unity of the knowledge of the Son of God. And when Paul takes this discussion into verse 14, you have this, this importance of standing firm in the face of false teaching. You take all those things together, it, it makes a compelling case that what Paul is concerned with here is when he wants the church to attain to the unity of the faith, he wants them to be united around the content of the Christian faith. What is it we believe? What is the gospel? That's what we are to have this unity around. And it shouldn't surprise us that this is Paul's ambition for the church. When uh, we find a moment in, in Acts chapter 20 where Paul is reflecting on the years that he spent in Ephesus, he reminds the elders of that church what had characterized those years that he was with them. Here's some of the things he says. You yourselves know how I lived among you, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. You see, Paul was convinced that that's what would build up the church. More than that, in that passage, Paul also warns those elders, fierce wolves would rise up. Speaking twisted things is how he puts it. Well, how would these elders ever recognize twisted things if they did not first have a clear view of what untwisted, undistorted, true things were? 
Yes, this is Paul's call to the church to have unity, but to have unity around something concrete. To have unity around the content of our faith. And I don't know, as we sit here in 21st century, I think it should alarm us that this is what Paul says, because it is often not the emphasis of our church unity. Often it is not the case. And especially, I think, independent evangelical churches can can struggle with this. There can be a sense sometimes that a church's convictions can be mostly unspoken. They can mostly be just left assumed, sometimes leaving many unsure just exactly what our shared convictions are. Now, don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying that every issue needs to be nailed down and we need to have absolute agreement between everyone on everything. There is, of course, room for a difference of opinion on secondary issues, and that is a valuable thing to have amongst Christians. But I fear that often on the fundamentals of the gospel, churches, and often for pragmatic reasons, are content to be vague But the truth is, there is no real unity in a church if we sacrifice doctrinal integrity. Because you see, we then shift the focus of our unity onto something else. We find other points of commonality. Instead of making those points of commonality be our convictions about the faith. But I want to stress again, by no means should we be dividing over matters of conscience or matters that have no bearing on our shared commitment to the core truths of the gospel. My challenge is to say, are we clear on what those core truths are? So what are some of the examples of what we have unity on, or how should we think through this? As I've reflected on this, um, I've decided to approach it this way. I, I think that church history should be our friend here. For most of us, probably when we hear the phrase church history, we don't think of it being our friend. But what a precious resource has been entrusted to us. In Before we arrived on the scene, we have, we have 20 centuries of Christians who have thought deeply about the Christian faith, who have considered the Christian doctrine uh, of every Christian doctrine from every conceivable ang- angle. They have, they have dealt with objections and criticisms and have articulated the truth of the gospel and handed it down to us. We have a wonderful deposit given to us in the history of the church. And with each generation of the church, the challenges that arise to the, to the truth, challenges against the gospel, they're slightly